0: Hello, I'm Anika Menema, a Radio Life student at Calvert, and I would like to welcome to the January 6, 2019. And my name is Amanda Pottist, a senior studying speech pathology from Illinois. And we would also like to give a special welcome to three of our 52 remote webcast sites, Bradenton, Florida, Portland, Oregon, and Marquette, Michigan. And now, uh, will you please pray with me, dear Lord, Thank you for this day and All the people here today. Thank you for Collin College and all the speakers of the generous series. Thank you for Eric and his information he's about to deliver. And we ask that the world and our hearts that inclusion may become a part in our daily lives. Please, our please bless our time together, and that we glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now, John Whitley,
1: Director of the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, will introduce our guest. Dr. Eric Carter is the Cornelius Vanderbilt Professor of Special Education at Vanderbilt University the recipient of several distinguished awards for his teaching and research, author of a wonderful book, including People with Disabilities in Faith Communities, and we are so pleased to say a 2019 recipient of a Vital Worship Teacher Scholar grant from the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship here on campus. Dr. Carter is a passionate teacher, scholar, and advocate for inclusive community life and a collaborator in a dynamic network of national leaders eager to advance this vision. A network that includes several Calvin College alumni and faculty, and our own philosophy professor, Kevin Tempe, who is hosting Dr. Carter and several other presenters on campus this week for a conference entitled Disability and Social Structures. Professor Carter will be available in the west lobby of the Covenant Fine Arts Center following this presentation. Calvin College is deeply grateful to Howard Miller for underwriting today's presentation. Please now welcome Professor Eric Carter.
0: Well, good afternoon. It's an honor to be back at Calvin College and in the company of so many people who care so deeply about creating communities where everyone can flourish together, where people with and without disabilities can live and learn and love and serve and worship together and where those on the margins are brought to the middle and the stranger is made a friend. Uh, I'm just so pleased that disability is part of this January series conversation and the topic for uh, my lecture today will be on uh, the church and people with disabilities, uh, Incomplete Without You. In my short time with you today, what I hope to do is highlight what we're learning through our research with young people with disabilities and their families about what it means to be a community that's marked by belonging. And for members of our community who sometimes encounter wounding as much as they encounter welcome, this is a conversation that matters so very much. And although my focus will be on uh, individuals with labels like Down syndrome and autism and intellectual and other developmental disabilities, I think what you'll find is that this conversation about belonging is really about what it means to make sure that anyone finds a community of belonging. So I wanna challenge you to think about the communities that you care most about and that you're part of, your churches, your schools, uh, your neighborhoods, your workplaces, this campus, and think about how these dimensions of belonging might play out here in this community. But I want to start by just uh, sharing a little historical perspective on the field. Some of you are deeply involved in work around disability. For others of you, this is a brand new conversation. But I want to take you back in time a little bit and give a sense of the history of this work um, and I think actually my own life provides a little bit of a sense of a time frame uh, for this uh, change that we've seen that's been so dramatic. Now, I'm 45 years old. Uh, I didn't think that was very old until my son, when we were curling up with him in bed at night uh, to put him down, asked my wife and I, Dad, what was life like in the 1900s? <laughs> and we got kind of angry and we realized, oh, okay. <laughs> but I was born in 1973. At the time I was born, most individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities were wholly excluded from public education and so many other community activities. Imagine each of these circles reflects a different community member and you see there are holes in our community. And then even as those early advocacy movements started to take hold in the 1970s and we began to advance legislation and policy, so often the opportunities that emerged for people with disabilities were offered entirely in segregated context, entirely apart from anyone else who didn't have a similar label. Then throughout the 1980s and throughout the 1990s, those were the years I was attending elementary school and high school and then into college, our pursuits as a field began to change even further. Our work focused on integrating people with disabilities into the same schools they would have attended if they didn't have a disability. Uh, and this was a time of incredible progress. But what it most often meant was students in separate classrooms, uh, near, but not really among other people who didn't have disabilities. Near, but not really, really among. And most recently, I think even today, We've talked about the efforts to invest in full inclusion of people with disabilities, inclusion in the same classes and clubs and cafeterias as their classmates without disabilities, in the same workplaces, in the same community programs, in the same neighborhoods, even in the same colleges, moving from among to with. Do you see the very different portraits of community reflected in these images? I could pause for the whole hour unpacking each one of these, but I share them now for three very particular reasons. The first is, it turns out this isn't the history of our field. This is actually a portrait of the present right now. This reflects the landscape in communities and states all around the country where you'll see exclusion and segregation and integration and inclusion occurring right alongside one another. And second, these are portraits not just in our schools and in our workplaces, But there are also portraits that play out in our churches as well. And third, the reason I share this progression of images, because if you think about it as a journey, I don't think we've yet arrived at our destination. If you spend time talking to young people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in their families about the things that matter most, they talk about wanting to be much more than just integrated or even simply included. They talk about wanting to belong. We all want to belong. Beyond integration and even further than inclusion is belonging. And how would that be depicted? I'm not really sure. Uh, I think it means somehow we fundamentally come to see each other in different ways, not as the ins and the outs, not as the members and the strangers, as the labelers and the ones who are labeled, but as a single community, diverse, each of inestimable worth, uh, but equal. Or at another level, I think it also means that we do much more than just share space. We actually share lives together. We enter into relationships with one another. We're not just co-located, but we remain involved in each other's lives the other six days of the week after the benediction. There's an important difference between inclusion and belonging. It's the difference between being present and having a real presence. It's the difference between making room for someone when they arrive and missing them when they fail to arrive. It's the difference between welcoming someone's presence and actually aching for their absence. And it's that last destination that you see on your screen, this place of belonging that I want to spend most of my time with you today. How might our churches become communities of belonging for people with disabilities and their families? And what does it even mean to belong? Well, you could reflect on that in your own lives. Think about the communities that you're part of, the churches you're part of, the neighborhoods, whatever groups you're part of. What are the things that would tell you that you really do belong in those communities? It's one of those things that when we don't belong, we feel it viscerally, Uh, but it's harder to pinpoint what that means. Well, that's a question that's cut across the work uh, of my colleagues and I for the last 20 years through our research at Vanderbilt and elsewhere. As we strive to foster belonging in our schools and in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and yes, even in our churches, what will tell us that we've arrived? And what are the landmarks along the way that we can point to that tell us we're moving in the right directions? And so that's what I want to offer you, some answers that emerge from a multi-year research project where we've partnered with nearly 500 young people with intellectual disabilities and autism and their families to learn about their faith journeys and the things that help them feel like belong in their faith, they belong in their faith communities. And out of those conversations, 10 different dimensions of belonging have emerged. Listen closely to what these families and individuals shared with us. They said, we feel like we belong when we're present, when we're invited, when we're welcomed, when we're known, when we're accepted, when we're supported, when we're cared for, when we're befriended, needed, and loved. I'm going to spend my time walking through each of those ten dimensions challenging you to think about the communities you're part of and the extent to which they reflect an investment in these ten different dimensions of belonging. But I think you'll notice a couple things right off the bat. Belonging isn't about location, which is often what integration and inclusion focus on, where people spend their time. It's much more about posture than it is about place. And belonging is much more likely to be fostered through personal relationships than simply starting a new program or ministry. And I hope you'll see as I walk through these that belonging is fostered through ordinary gestures, gestures you know already know how to do, much more than extraordinary responses. So let's begin with presence because belonging always begins with presence. And yet in so many communities, the principal barrier to someone feeling like they belong Is simply the absence of people with disabilities from worship and service and learning and other aspects that make up congregational life. It's really hard to feel like you belong from the outside. And I should emphasize here that the absence of people with disabilities from your church is not reflective of the absence of people with disabilities from your local community. There's 60 million Americans with disabilities. That's about 19% of any community, one in five members of any community. And about 3% of any community has labels like autism or Down syndrome or intellectual disabilities. They are numbers that cut across every single demographic group, racial, ethnic, economic, geographic. So I know it was not in the program that I'm gonna ask you to do some math, but I want you to do some math. Think about the community that you're part of. What's one-fifth of Holland, Michigan, or Kalamazoo? What's one-fifth of Frankenmuth or Wyoming? And here we are in Grand Rapids. A million people reside in this community. That means there are nearly 200,000 people with disabilities. About 25,000 children and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities call this place home. And so you start to think about that biblical question, who's my neighbor? And you start to come up with a, quite a different answer. It includes people with disabilities. Now, I know as soon as I mentioned math, most of you disconnected in this room and online. So let me make the point in a different way. Sometimes these statistics feel a little bit too abstract to move us. So I actually rented a satellite for this event, which was uh, quite expensive to do. And I'm zooming in on where we are right now. What if we left this building and walked together into the communities that surrounded this campus or the communities that surrounded your local church? Uh, and we started to just uh, kind of knock on doors throughout any community. I'll just pick one here sort of at random. If we were to go door to door in any particular community and knock on doors, we'd find that one out of every three households whose door we knocked on includes a member who identifies as having a disability. It might be these houses. Now, I might have pulled up your neighborhood and you're like, well, I don't know if that fits, but it's for illustration purposes, Right. So when we think about our communities, they're filled with people with disabilities. How do we make sure that our congregations are filled with people with disabilities as well? And that's just one neighborhood that I zeroed in on. People with disabilities are present in our communities, but are they present in our churches? And I park here because most of the available data that I'm familiar with and that we collect suggests that ministry apart from people with disabilities is the dominant ministry model across the country. Consider just a sampling of the statistics from our research and my colleagues. More than half of adults with intellectual disabilities in the United States have not been connected to a religious service or any kind of spiritual practice in the prior month. More than half of parents tell us that they've kept their child with disabilities from participating in religious activities because there just wasn't support provided. Uh, Nearly three quarters of teenagers who would love to be part of a youth group in their local church don't have that opportunity We find that less than one in five congregations are said to offer supports related to respite or family support or inclusion in their religious education programs for people with disabilities. What are the things that are standing in the way of presence of people in our faith communities? Is it barriers of awareness or attitude, barriers of program access or something else? You know, it used to be that the primary barrier to getting into any congregation was architecture. We used to build our churches historically without people with disabilities in mind. I collect a lot of weird things. One of them is pictures of the most inaccessible churches around the world. (laughs) This is one in Germany built into the side of the mountain. A quite beautiful one out in the middle of I don't know where or how you get there. A church in Italy that has taken inaccessibility to new heights, literally, and the most inaccessible congregation I think in the world is actually in East, uh, Eastern Europe. It's technically a monastery, right? But you get the point. I think actually there's a ladder that kind of goes up to it, right? These pictures always get the chuckle that they just got here because they're a caricature. But I wonder if subtler barriers send the same message. What do our buildings say about our theology? What do those steps say? The pulpit that someone can't get to the curriculum that some kids just can't participate in, the classroom that's inaccessible, does where and how we choose to gather as a community sometimes suggest that we're thinking about our community just a bit too narrowly, even if it's inadvertent. I've always loved this quote by Ed Wood. He says, if shut-ins can go to Walmart, but not your church, they're shut out, they're not shut in. And there's a really important lesson there. What if the rest of our community is far more accessible and welcoming than our faith community. What a challenge for us to think about how we push beyond uh, prevailing practices. So the point of reflection is to think about what stands in the way of presence if presence is a barrier to belonging. Presence is the baseline for belonging, but it's really just the starting point. It's not the destination. It reflects ministry among people with disabilities, but we're called the press deeper and deeper in this space. Well, in a lot of churches, increasing presence is just going to require extending some new invitations. And this was the second dimension of belonging that we learned from families. It was the notion of being invited, and belonging begins with a personal invitation to be sought out, to actually be pursued. Um, when we're not intentional about reaching deeply into our communities, we inadvertently leave people out. As one pastor reflected, It's not that we deliberately excluded people with disabilities. In fact, we weren't deliberate at all, and that is what was the problem. So as congregations, I've kind of noticed we like to proclaim that we are welcoming. We do that on our websites, our church signs, and our outreach materials. Goodness, we even do it on our coffee mugs, right? And that's probably worthwhile, but we presume that proclamation is sufficient. Everyone is welcomed. But there's quite a big difference between an announcement and an invitation. And that's important to recognize here. An invitation is very personal, an announcement's not. An invitation says, I'm actually thinking about you specifically. An announcement always leaves open the possibility of that asterisk or that footnote, that unspoken qualifier that makes someone wonder whether you really mean me when you say you're a place of welcome and hospitality. And I emphasize that because there have been far too many asterisks in our proclamations of welcome. For many people with disabilities in their families, that statement of a warm welcome has not always been honored. And so know that your announcements about your hospitality may not resonate with families who've been excluded in the past. We were struck in one of our studies when we found that nearly one out of three parents said they had left their place of worship because their son or daughter with developmental disabilities had not been welcomed or included. One in three families. So perhaps the call is both to announce and also to invite together. I do think that the language and the imagery and the messages that you incorporate on your websites and your other outreach materials are important. They do send a cue to families and individuals that you really are thinking about them when you talk about your community and you describe it as a place of welcome and hospitality. But again, it's those active personal invitations that are gonna be so powerful for families. Third, we heard from individuals and families about the power of being welcomed. And what was interesting is they weren't talking about what people said to them when they walked in the building. They were talking about how they felt in that community. It's not the host who determines what's welcoming. It's the guest who determines that. And even though attitudes have changed dramatically over the last few decades in society regarding disability, there are still so many people who are uncertain about what to say or what to do. They're hesitant or reluctant or uncertain about what, to, what not to say or what not to do. And when we feel that uncertainty, that almost always leads to avoidance, doesn't it? When we don't know what to say or we're worried about what to say, we just step out of the picture. Well, when people go overlooked or unacknowledged, they stop coming. So what does hospitality look like for people with developmental disabilities and their families? It's pretty ordinary. It means greeting people when they arrive introducing them to others, drawing them into conversations, inviting them to other church events, uh, inviting them to be part of your small group, uh, asking them to go out for lunch, and noticing when they're not there and following up to find out why. Those are the sort of ordinary actions that families in our project said. One family said, we just felt like we were wanted. The principal requirement here is not having disability expertise. You don't need a PhD, you don't have to be a professor in special education. And you definitely don't delegate the work of welcoming to your hospitality committee. This is everyone's call in the congregation. But there are times when it can be helpful to get a little guidance on what language to use or etiquette or things like that about how to extend a warm reception. What do you do when you meet someone who has complex communication challenges or behaves in kind of unusual ways? A little bit of guidance can be sometimes helpful there. And the great thing is there are so many denominational and national and regional ministries that are here to come alongside you and give you the kind of resources and guidance you might need there to be more confident and comfortable in those roles. Not to mention people who are part of your church, who work in disability fields or in special education or local disability agencies that would love to help you widen your welcome to people with disabilities. Fourth. We talked a lot with families and heard from them about the aspect of belonging that involves being known. As Christians, we're called to welcome the stranger, aren't we? But people are not supposed to remain the stranger for very long. They're supposed to move from stranger to friend. And yet people with intellectual and developmental disabilities so often find themselves in the role of perpetual stranger. They're known about, but they're not known personally. So what we heard from families is that whether their sons and daughters are known was important, but what they really parked on was how their sons and daughters were known, not first and foremost by their labels, but by their names, and not solely by their struggles, but also by their strengths and gifts and passions. Some of you are professionals who work in the disability service system, and you're very familiar with the language and definitions we use to talk about disability. Almost always in terms of what people cannot do and struggle to do. I've put a couple definitions up on your screen. You'll notice they're not in your handouts because I don't want you to write them down and I don't want you to commit them to memory. I just want to point out where we park on so often when we think about a disability, right? What an odd way to know someone. What an incomplete way to define someone and how prone we are to mislabel people. And so when a church considers the question, how do we welcome people with autism into our faith community? Or a youth pastor thinks about how do I really include someone with an intellectual disability in our youth programs and all they have to work from is this kind of image. That makes for a really hard introduction. And I just don't think there's this place for that kind of labeling within our congregations. How we come to know people really does matter. And what if we made at least as much of an investment in understanding people in terms of their gifts and their passions and their uh, strengths and positive qualities that they bring to relationships and bring to communities? The things that remind us of just how indispensable they are to communities, not how incapable they are in some context. Can we think about young people with developmental disabilities first and foremost in terms of their strengths? That should evoke an amen or an absolutely we can, right? So when we talk with parents in our studies, they absolutely can. We surveyed about 500 families, parents of adolescents, 13 to 21, who had children with intellectual disability and autism. And we asked them not about what's wrong or what the challenges are with their kids, but the strengths and positive traits. The extent to which their child uh, uh, exhibited qualities like kindness and humor and gratitude and empathy and courage and optimism. And there's a great scale. If you don't know if you possess those traits, I'm glad to administer it to you after the the talk. But the portrait that emerged from these families was very different to that deficit-based view that I just put up on your screen. The blue bar that will pop up is the percentage of parents who said, that's a lot like my son or daughter. 93% 93% of families said, my son or daughter is happy and filled with joy. Is, uh, my child enjoys life and is thankful for life's simple pleasures. My child has a great sense of humor. My child is thoughtful and helpful to others. My s- child is quick to demonstrate care for other people and is bothered or concerned or upset when someone else is uncomfortable or distressed. Is filled with empathy. My child's courageous bounces back uh, quickly. My son or daughter does not try to retaliate or get back at others who've hurt them. And remembering that this is a study of parents of adolescence, only half said my child doesn't lose their temper. And I don't believe that half, actually, but you get the point, right? Can we find a place for people with those strengths in our congregations? How many churches can find a place for someone known for their gratitude and their empathy and their kindness? How many people would love to develop a friendship with someone who's funny or happy and thoughtful? How many businesses would be quick to hire someone if they knew they were known for their persistence and their joy and their kindness? For those of you who are pastors, how many of you would love to have a congregation filled with people who exhibit those traits, right? Extend some new invitations, How we know people matters, and we as the church can come to know people in an entirely different light, through an entirely different lens. That takes us to the fifth dimension, which was to be accepted. And real acceptance comes actually through being known personally, not just being known about. The families we talk to talk about their child being welcomed without condition, treated like family, embraced for all of who they were. And even though attitudes have changed dramatically over the last couple decades in society, they still, those uh, less accepting attitudes still permeate our culture. They still permeate our church. When we asked parents to share their perspective on the extent to which their current congregation, the one they go to, was accepting of their son or daughter with disabilities, only a little more than half strongly agreed that church leaders really accepted their child. A little less than half Strongly agreed that other members of the congregation did. Right? The other thing I collect, that's a more disheartening one, is those statements that we overhear that are just these reminders of prevailing attitudes. Uh, why is he part of this class if we don't know he'll get anything out of it? Um, none of us are trained to work with those particular children. Uh, The most disheartening, uh, Emma doesn't really understand the meaning of communion. I'm not sure she should really participate. Is that really the bar for taking communion? And how many of us might actually be excluded if that was? But that's another talk for another day. So I think churches can really invest in thinking about promoting acceptance. That might be a disability inclusion awareness Sunday that you do, or thinking about how you embed sort of content into your religious education curriculum. Those can be ways that sort of are formally promoting greater acceptance, and I think they have a place as a part of our portfolio of investments. But again, it's personal investment in someone's life that is really the most powerful way to change attitudes, not through information, but through relationships. Because when you step into someone's life, all of your preconceived ideas about who they are get overturned pretty quickly, Right? Now, I want to emphasize, because I assume that some of you might be uh, church leaders here in this room or uh, streaming online, how important it is uh, what happens or what's communicated from the pulpit in terms of promoting acceptance. And I understand a lot of you come from very different religious traditions. And so some of you are gonna struggle more with this than others, but let me make a few suggestions. You're in pretty good shape in your church if you've got a pastor who's completely unfazed when someone answers aloud his rhetorical questions in the middle of a sermon. That's a pretty good sign. Who designates the entire sanctuary a no shush zone. You are not allowed to turn and shush someone. If you've got a pastor who, instead of sending a person who's making a little noise to the cry room, instead says, let's take the people who can only worship in total silence and send them to the cry room, and the rest of us who are okay with a little noise can be out here, that flips sort of where the real barrier is, doesn't it? The pastor who doesn't require you to master all points on a sermon to be able to come back to the sanctuary next week, the person who says, we're willing to try things a little bit different if it brings someone else into community. I can share with you in the Q&A if you want some of what we're learning about how theological schools are preparing pastors, but we've got a lot of work there to do as well. Six, the individuals and families that we spoke with needed support, and sometimes that support had to be substantial. I think lots of congregations take steps to ensure that anyone who wants to be part of their church is able to do so, whether that's through childcare, helping with transportation, uh, financial support, uh, connecting families to small groups. Do those things for families impacted by disability. But also think about the more individualized and intentional ways you can support families. This is not a place for presumption, this is a place to invite input. We found that uh, almost half of all parents uh, of children with intellectual and developmental disabilities have never been asked the best way to support their son or daughter in congregational life. So ask good questions. What could we do to make Sunday morning the best day of the week for your child? How can we support your family to be part of all we do in and through this congregation? I don't know what their answers will be, Uh, but ask those questions. I can share from our research, when we've done this with 500 families, we've seen some themes that have emerged from these congregate conversations. When we say, what kinds of things could churches do that would be helpful for your son or daughter? I've arranged 14 different practical ideas uh, from those that were considered most helpful to least helpful by families. Things like simply having disability awareness efforts in your church. Making sure information is available to families who are really struggling to navigate this world of disability and the service system. Having an advocate for families who's intentional about making sure the supports and welcome are there for people impacted by disability spiritual counseling from a congregational leader, a support group that connects families, respite that just helps families go out on a date or do some shopping or something that gives them a brief uh, time uh, together modifications to religious education uh, activities, an intentional plan for supporting uh, uh, their child, support in religious education, uh, support during worship services, and a host of other things. I won't read them all through. My point is that there are a number of things that families might suggest that might come up. What struck us is that as we asked families what would be most helpful, we also asked them whether their church actually offers this. The percentages that are popping down the side of your screen now are the percentages of churches that actually do these things. 10% offer any kind of disability awareness. 8% any kind of respite care. The gap, the opportunity for disability in ministry is the gap between these numbers. If you're not sure how we would even do that as a church, uh, we've put together a guide uh, that walks you through how to do this step by step. For the next 24 hours, it's completely free to download. After that, it's also completely free. It's always completely free. <laughs> I just want to create some urgency for you. <laughs> right. Seventh, healthy family, faith communities are marked by care for one another. They strive to meet the spiritual, the emotional, the practical needs of their members. And we heard that from families as well. When families were connected to a, a strong faith community and had a vibrant faith, their family quality of life was significantly higher. This is a place where we can think about ministry to people with disabilities. What happens after the benediction, the other six days of the week? How are we helping people with disabilities and their families to flourish in the workplace, in their relationships, in other ways? What can we do that thinks beyond the walls of our congregation? How can churches collectively come together to meet deep needs in their community? There are no shortages of congregations that can help care for people with disabilities and their families. There's 335,000 churches across the country. Most of them, turn out, are actually here in Grand Rapids. Almost, (laughs) Almost all of them. A few of them are also in Nashville, Tennessee. Every red dot is a church in our community. Think about how collectively the church could address the unemployment rate of people with intellectual disabilities. It's 90%. That's not the employment rate. That's the unemployment rate. Inadequate housing abounds, Uh, poverty rates are nearly two or three times what they are for people without disabilities, inadequate transportation. These are places for us to think about making a difference that doesn't require expertise in disability, but expertise in other areas. Like your congregation's filled with potential employers and actual employers, people who work all throughout your community. Think about what would happen if the congregation came alongside people with disabilities, got to know their strengths and their passions and their sense of calling, and said, who do we know in our church or through our church who could use someone exactly like that? That's the putting faith to work model that we've been partnering on and connecting lots of people with disabilities for the first time to jobs. Or think about faith-based residential initiatives like the Friendship House, which is now at seminaries uh, growing across the country, including, of course, one down in Holland, Michigan. They're creating inclusive housing options that are not just good for people with disabilities, right, who need safe and supportive housing options, but it's fundamentally transforming future clergy and how they think about their community when they live in community with people with disabilities. 8 we we're made for relationships. And the relationships are really at the heart of belonging. Having people in your life who know you, who accept you, who love you, uh, who miss you when you're not there. That companionship, the intimacy, the reciprocity, all of that that comes through friendships is really vital to our thriving. There's actually been research in the U.S. and in the U.K. that says that um, uh, loneliness and isolation are greater health risks than obesity obesity and smoking, right? It doesn't just hurt to be lonely. It actually can kill you. And all the other dimensions of belonging that I've talked about, you can kind of do those at arm's length, but to befriend someone takes belonging to new levels. It takes it deeper. And yet the friendships so fundamental to human flourishing are so elusive for many people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. One nationally representative study says that half of uh, all uh, high school students with autism have not been invited to any other kids' social activities in the last year, not once. One out of every four adults with intellectual disability who are living in group homes and other service system residential facilities have no one in their life beyond family and paid support staff. This is a place that ministry can really happen, to step in people's lives and build out their social connections and relationships. All of you know lots of people. In fact, social scientists tell us that the average person knows about 150 to 600 people. Now, social scientists don't know that many people because people don't want to hang out with social scientists too often, but the average person does, right? You've got family members, You've got people you'd name as your close friends and companions. You have people you talk with every now and then, occasionally, that you spend time with and engage with, but they're not your close friends. That's where Facebook friends are, actually. But, and then you've got people who are paid to be in your life. Your doctor, right? Your uh, auto mechanic. A couple you have a defense attorney. Those are your issues, Right? When we do the same activity with uh, young people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, we actually find a similar number of names that go up on the chart as they do for young people of the same age without disabilities. They just go into entirely different circles, into the inner circle of family and the outer circle of staff and providers and therapists. I hope you see here the power of what you do between Sundays. And after the benediction. It's about life lived together beyond the walls of the congregation that pushes people from acquaintances to becoming friends. And it's simple things that you do, like inviting someone to go out for a meal, participating in a favorite hobby together, going for a walk, going to the mall, catching a movie, watching the big game, joining the small, same small group. For adults with intellectual disability, those ordinary gestures so rarely happen outside of the service system. And the great thing about this dimension is you don't need any training to be someone's friend. You know how to do these things. But I also think this dimension has important implications for our ministry models. Are we doing ministry in ways that put people in a a place where they're likely to get picked as friends? And that pushes us to models that are more inclusive. Ninth dimension we know we belong when we're needed and we feel needed when others in the congregation see us as bringing gifts and talents that benefit the entire community that are really essential to its thriving this is ministry by people with disabilities and it reflects the recognition that they like anyone else has gifts and talents that make them indispensable to the body more and more churches are investing in ministry to people with disabilities Lots of them struggle to move into a place of ministry by people with disabilities. They're still seen as the designated recipients of support, the focus of ministry rather than one's doing ministry. And those roles of who's the giver and the receiver remain far too static and often predetermined. Certainly people with disabilities have much to gain from being part of a faith community, but our faith communities have much to gain from making sure people with disabilities are part as well. And this is quite countercultural in a society that increasingly and very comfortably argues against the very existence of certain people. It sees people in instrumental and transactional ways. The idea that people with disabilities have gifts that we need to receive seems so uh, countercultural, so hard to fathom, and yet that's how things are. They're upside down in the kingdom. That's why I love this church sign so much. I stopped to take a picture of it a number of years ago uh, while I was driving my son to school. It suggests a posture that I wish every church had as it relates to people with disabilities. We need you here ASAP. As a community, do we see ourselves as incomplete without people with disabilities and their families? This is the chapter that, uh, that church sign I think referred to. I've picked a few pieces. I don't think they had disability in mind, but I like to read that into it. When we're convinced this is true, we start to do things a little bit different. We don't think of inclusion as something nice to do because it's good for someone else. We think it is something to do because it's essential to the thriving of our community. We don't wait till people arrive to start thinking about how we're going to welcome them. We actually start pursuing people who are missing. We don't try to just tinker and retrofit our programs and our church activities so that work for people with disabilities. We design our programs and activities from the outset as if people with disabilities are going to be part of that. And we move people from an afterthought to a forethought. Well, that takes us to the final dimension that I wanted to park on today, and that's uh, the dimension of Love to belong is to be loved and if you are at all worried that a social scientist from Vanderbilt is going to lecture you on love, never fear, right? I don't think I have to make that connection for you. Some of you know the work of a man named Wolf Wolfensberger, a pioneer in our field who really was instrumental in bringing the institutions to a close and returning people to life in their community. He offered the observation that healing for wounded people with disabilities begins with three messages. You are valuable, You are as valuable as anyone else, and you are loved by those around you. The scriptures remind us over and over that all we do, all we are, must be marked by love. And service systems, as critical as they are, they were not designed to love, but the church was. And that's the portrait of belonging uh, that we learn from these families. And it's one, I think, that ought to push us further towards points of reflection, as we think about our own congregations and people with disabilities, are people with disabilities and their families personally invited? Are they present in all aspects of congregational life? Are they experiencing a warm welcome when they arrive? Are they well known throughout your faith community? Are they accepted without condition and without caveat? Uh, are they provided care in ways that enable them to flourish? Are they developing friendships with, one, with others all throughout your community? Are they seen as needed and indispensable to the thriving of your community? And are they loved deeply and unconditionally? And you could ask yourself in each of those areas what are we doing really well right now? What could we be doing better or more of or differently? And in fact, it provides a nice point of reflection for anyone in your community. How well we do, do we do these things for anyone who's part of our congregation? So you see that initial portraits I provided of, of the progression of our field also end up being a progression of ministry models as well with just a quick flip. How do we move people from ministry apart from people with disabilities to ministry to people with disabilities, to ministry among, to ministry with To ministry by people with disabilities. I'm convinced that we come to see our communities as incomplete without people with disabilities when we're doing ministry with and ministry by. And so that leaves me with just a few quick myths that I want to dispel before we uh, wrap up our time together. Myths that I actually haven't always heard, uh, but uh, I want to dispel them anyway. They're sort of implied in our practice. And the first is that people with disabilities have special needs. Right. I just want to challenge or push back on that a little bit in this way. If those 10 dimensions of belonging reflect our deepest needs, they don't seem special to me. They actually seem pretty ordinary, and they seem pretty universal. These are all of our deepest needs. So how do we think about not doing special needs ministry, but actually what I would say is universal needs ministry? To welcome people, to invite them, to know them, to support them, to befriend them, to need them, and to love them. And the second myth that emerges from all this that I hear, no one actually says this, but it's kind of implied in practice that we should start new programs, right? That's our first inclination when we respond to the presence of people with disabilities is to begin a new program. It's not that I'm against that, it's just that belonging doesn't come through a program, it comes through relationships. And our inclination when we start a program is so often to look at schools and workplaces and design things that are separate or specialized. And when we do that, we inadvertently limit the chance people have to be welcomed, to become known, to become befriended and needed and loved. And so if programs aren't leading to belonging, programs should be abandoned. We want to think about putting people in a position where relationships are fostered. Myth three, belonging is the best left to the experts. I hope I've dispelled that. Think about how do you invite anyone? How do you welcome anyone? How do you come to support anyone or befriend them or need them? Do those things for people with disabilities and their families and let them do those things for you as well. And the last myth that I want to bust, I know some of you have been sitting here thinking, okay, I'm convinced, I get it, Eric, someone ought to be doing this. Uh, But I'm not really sensing a call on my particular church. And I'm wondering, kind of, maybe we could establish, uh, you know, there's a church down the street that does this really well. They do disability ministry. Maybe we could just establish a ministry of referral. Would that sort of meet what you're talking about? So the myth is not that someone else should be doing it, it's that someone else includes me in you and your church and my church. This is a call on every one of us. And the last thing I want to share with you is my collection, not of pictures or statements but of position statements from different congregations and faith traditions and religions that tell us the scriptural call for why we ought to be about this. The call is wide and on every one of us. If you don't see your denomination popping up, I've got it somewhere. Um, So this is really something we're all to invest in uh, somehow in some way. So that brings me to my close of my talk. And I just want to leave you with your own sort of questions for reflection as you think about the communities you care about. How might the attitudes and actions of congregation members and leaders and other community leaders in all corners of our community aim towards those dimensions of belonging? And what are the steps that you and your community could do to take to make sure that everyone is present and invited, welcomed and known, accepted and supported, and supported? Cared for, befriended, needed, and loved. Thank you.